Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you're listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 138, The Great Theurgy Debate, Porphyry's Letter to Anibo, Yamukus's Response, and The Question of Ritual. Yes, gentle listener, it's finally time to talk about the De Mysteries of Yambicus, the greatest apologia for polytheist ritual practice surviving from antiquity, and a work which has changed the whole course of Western esotericism in a number of key ways. In this episode, we're going to do our basic due diligence about uh, the manuscript, questions of authorship, and so on and so forth, then talk a little bit about porphyry, and Iamblichus's uh, respective roles in this thing, and basically just try to introduce this book, which preserves the fascinating debate between two philosophers, if it is a debate, we'll get to that, about ritual practices and their philosophical validity and effectiveness. As for the apparent subject matter of the debate, theurgy, this is such a fascinating topic that we've gone to a number of different specialist scholars and interviewed them with the aim of juxtaposing their often quite radically different interpretations of what Yamblichian theurgy was. Keen listeners will remember in episode 133, we introduced this potent word, theurgy, and talked about how it's come to mean so many different things in Western esotericism. Well, this book, The De Mysterious, is the reason that that is the case, right? We know that the term is sort of associated with the Chaldean oracles, which are 150, 200 years earlier than the De Mysteries. But the De Mysteries is the book that puts its stamp on theurgy. It tells us what theurgy is supposed to be, what it's all about, right? Now, some people think Iamblichus is making this up. Other people think he's rocking within a tradition. Because there's so much variety of opinion on this in scholarly circles, we thought the best thing to do would be to talk to a bunch of scholars who all disagree with each other. So in this episode, our aim is really just to give a solid grounding of what the book De Mysterious is like, what it's about, etc., for people who haven't had a chance to read it. And this series of episodes interviewing specialist scholars will explore the philosophical, magical territory of Yamblichian theurgy as outlined in this book in much more detail. So first of all, what is the De Mysterious? Listeners who've been following our series on Yamblichus will have picked up the basics already, and we've been citing the work as well here and there, the divine genealogies of archangels, angels, heroes, and so forth that we talked about two weeks ago. They mostly come from this work. But I think it'll be useful to some listeners quickly to summarize the basics again, so you have it all in one place. There'll be a bit of repetition here, gentle listeners, but we hope you'll forgive our getting especially in-depth in our treatment of this book, because it's one of the most amazing and esoteric books to survive from the ancient world, and it's an absolutely crucial seminal text for Western esotericism. We also apologize in advance to any listeners who revel in short but sweet episodes. This one is going to be a doozy. So, the De Mysteries is a work by Iamblichus, we think, we'll come back to the authorship question in a moment, in the form of a long theoretical response to another work by Porphyry which was known as the Letter to Anibo, or Letter to Anibo the Egyptian. Porphyry's work is lost, but a lot of fragments remain, which were initially edited together by Sodano, and are now more easily available in the Budet edition, edited by Safre and Segons. The same guys 
who put out a recent edition translation of The Day Mysterious in the same series. So, the letter to Anibo. We don't know that much about it. We don't know how long it was. We don't know who this Anibo guy was. All we know is that in it, Porphyry asks a load of questions about religious practices. Now, most of what survives from the letter to Anibo survives in the De Mysteries. But the problem is that Iamblichus doesn't really seem to be quoting Porphyry. What he seems to be doing is paraphrasing his questions, rephrasing them in his own language. And we'll come back to that. But we do have a couple other fragments, notably from Eusebius and Augustine, who make their own use of Porphyry's work, mainly in the context of because Porphyry is criticizing certain polytheist practices, saying, why would you do this? Why would you do that? That's stupid. That can't work. The gods aren't really like that. Augustine and Eusebius want to mine that for criticisms of polytheist practice, right? In the service of uh, Christian polemic. Now, we know, by the way, that the letter to Anibo was translated into Arabic and had an afterlife among Islamicate intellectuals in the Middle Ages. But that is a story for a later episode. By the way, the De Mysteries, as far as we know, didn't make it into Arabic, although there is a tiny little smidgen of evidence that it did. And we'll hopefully be able to return to that in the podcast as well, or even discover the lost manuscript, right? But now, we need to make a short detour to 15th century Florence, as one often does. In the 15th century, what is now known as the Italian Renaissance was just getting into swing at the same time that the Roman Empire in the East was in its death throes. This is the Eastern Roman state that is usually called Byzantium. But because it's completely absurd to call it Byzantium, we call it the East Roman Empire on this podcast. We're talking about the Byzantine Empire, but we want to emphasize the real continuity between the East Roman state and what came before it, classical Roman Empire. So, Constantinople, capital of the Eastern Empire, that's Istanbul to you, fell to the Ottomans in the year 1453. The decades leading up to the sack of Constantinople and the time immediately afterwards led to wave after wave of Greek-speaking refugees from East Rome coming to Italy and actually wherever they could find safe haven around the Mediterranean. But the Italian Renaissance guys were eagerly welcoming these Greek-speaking Easterners, especially if they brought manuscripts with them. The cultural looting of Constantinople in her final days is the reason we have many of the wonderful works of Western esotericism that we do have. For example, the works of Plato and Aristotle, many crucial Greek astrological texts, the alchemical works of Zosimus of Panopolis, and many other essential works in the Western esoteric canon made their way out of Constantinople in the final days under the arm of some monk or a scriptorium worker, or maybe just plain old thief, looking to flog them and find, build a new life in Italy or elsewhere. This is how we come to have Iamblichus's De Mysteries, which, if one manuscript now lost had not made its way westward, would be lost 100%. And the whole history of Western esotericism would be a very different place. The book was, of course, given its well-known title De Mysteriis Aegyptiorum Caldeorum et Aseriorum on the mysteries of the Egyptians. And by mysteries, we mean secret initiatory rites, right? On the mysteries of the Egyptians, the Chaldeans, and the Assyrians by none other than Marsilio Ficino, whose Latin translation of it, or actually Latin summary, paraphrase, uh, he made during the years 1488 to 1489. And it was published eight years later, 
beginning, in a way, a new era of interaction between ancient Platonist ideas, and notably strongly polytheist Platonist ideas, right? And later medieval, early modern esoteric ideas. Ficino's own mind was completely blown by what he read in the De Mysteries. And from Ficino's reception and translation and paraphrase and, and other work, like the three books on life, this influence of Iamblichus was sort of injected into early modern Europe and went everywhere. But it was already present in Western esotericism, sort of in the DNA beforehand, because of course, as we'll see, Proclus is an incredibly influential writer on later generations in, in all the Abrahamic faiths, and Proclus is deeply, deeply Iamblichian. However, let's stay focused here. Needless to say, the time will come here on the Schwepp when we will discuss Marsilio Ficino in all his glory, including his engagement with Iamblichus. Cosimo de' Medici, Ficino's patron, had given him a copy of the De Mysteriis, now known as manuscript Wallichellianos F20, or maybe that's Wallichellianos if you're Italian. There was another manuscript, Marcianus Graecus 244, and that was donated to the Venetian library, the, the Marcian Library in Venice, by the great Renaissance humanist and Latin patriarch Bessarion, who was, of course, a student of the great neo-polytheist, esoteric, Platonist reformer, Georgios Gemistos Plithon. Oh, there I go. I'm doing it again. We've got to stay focused on our manuscript story. Here's the point. Both of these manuscripts are based on a single lost hype archetype, as it's called, meaning that we can tell that they both go back to the same manuscript. It's lost. These two versions both come from it. And that is it for our manuscripts of this work. They're both based on a single lost hype archetype. Both are faulty. Lots of errors have crept into the text. But we can more or less get the idea of what this book is about. And it is about some very cool stuff. Now, we know that this lost hype archetype also contained a scholion, which is like a marginal note, naming the work, the reply of the master Abamon to the letter of Porphyry, to Anibo, and solutions to the problems which it contains. And that, gentle listener, is the closest thing we have to a real title for this work. But everyone calls it De Mysteries. Let's just carry on doing that. Um, if that little aside about the manuscript history wasn't digressive enough, let me just point out that we have every reason to believe that this manuscript tradition passes through the hands of Michael Pselos, the great Platonist monk and wit and polymath and kind of esoteric master of the East Roman Empire who lived in the 11th century. But I digress. Now, is this work by Iamblichus? He is not named in the manuscript or in the title, such as it is. And in fact, we only get Abamon mentioned in the Scolion, right? The priestly character of the writer of the work is is given throughout. Like, I, as a priest, can tell you that this and that. But he never says, my name is Abamon. So how do we know it's by Abamon? Or by Iamblichus, for that matter? Well, Proclus thinks it's by Iamblichus. So a fellow Platonist and theurgist, and great admirer of him, writing roughly 100 years after Iamblichus, give or take, reckons it's by him. And even reckons it's, you know, sort of seemingly it's no news to anyone that it's by him. We know this because it is transmitted in the manuscripts by Michael Pselos, and um, he made some marginal comments, but we'll get back to that in the podcast when we get to the great Pselos. Now, most modern scholars agree with 
Proclus and Psellus that this is Iamblichus. But there are a few dissenting voices, um, whom we should take seriously, like Dershan, who suggests that, no, this really is an Egyptian priest named Abamon. Okay, that's not a popular view, but it's not crazy either. But um, we should really take seriously Sodano, a very important scholar of Porphyry and Iamblichus, who thinks that the De Mysterius is probably by a student of Iamblichus's, a member of his school, rather than by Iamblichus himself. This suggestion actually is not crazy. There's nothing quite like the De Mysterius in Iamblichus's other works. That doesn't prove anything, but it's a bit of circumstantial evidence. It's such a bizarre and unique work, propounding so many ideas which he never touches on elsewhere, but still very much within a Iamblichian kind of universe, that we may well come to think that it's not by him, but by someone whose thought is forged in the Iamblichian fire but who's then going off on one, right? On the other hand, we do see it again and again in the history of ideas where an author will produce one piece of work which is absolutely one-off and it's hard to believe it's by the same person who wrote all that other stuff, right? Uh, to take a classical early modern Western esoteric example, think of Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa's De Vanitate and the three books of occult philosophy. How can those all be by the same guy, right? But they are. Anyway, we have no way of proving it or disproving it, and are therefore pretty much stuck with Iamblichus. Um, certainly most scholars have no trouble thinking it's by him. Um, but really, if you think about it, we should be calling the author of this book the pseudo-Abamon, I guess, even though he never claims to be Abamon. We should really, I guess we should call it the De Mysteries author, if we want to be proper about it. But we're not going to do any of that, we're going to call him Iamblichus. Keeping in mind, though, that this may not be by Iamblichus. Incidentally, when we get to Proclus and uh, the transmission of theurgic Platonism into Christianity, we will encounter the Pseudo-Dionysius. And here we have a very interesting, somewhat parallel case, because Pseudo-Dionysius takes Proclan metaphysics and makes it into a crazy form of Christianity. And most people think this is this author who either studied with Proclus or read Proclus deeply was, you know, certainly drinking from the founts of Proclus's thought. But there are one or two renegade scholars who think, no, this stuff is by Proclus. Proclus is basically camouflaging his stuff under a Christian sort of uh, facade so as to uh, ensure that his ideas survive in the coming era of persecution that he sees coming. Not a popular view, but again, a view that is not entirely crazy. That's not really that analogous, but I just think that it is possible to imagine the day mysterious is by a kind of super freaky ritual obsessed a student of Iamblichus, who um, decided to take on the task of answering Porphyry's questions in this public letter to Anibo, and then went full theurge. Okay, what about the dating of this book? It's not really possible to date it. Assuming Iamblichus is the author, it's sometime in the life of Iamblichus, obviously. Dylan suggests quite early in his career, and therefore Porphyry's career. Uh, Safre Sagon suggests a late end of the third century sort of date. We don't really know. Right, that is our preliminary due diligence out of the way. Now let's get into this debate between our two Platonists. So this book, the De Mysteries or Response to Porphyry, is what it says on the tin. It is a response to Porphyry's letter to Anibo and claims to be a solution to the difficulties contained therein. Whether readers will find all these uh, solutions satisfactory or not is another question, but that's what it says it is. What can we say about Porphyry's letter to Anibo? 
a work that we promised to introduce way back when, when we were covering the great Tyrion. Well, there's a lot to say about this fragmentary work that will be of interest to the hardcore. But for the listener who just wants to get to the cool magic stuff, we'll summarize it as follows. Porphyry wrote this open letter to an Egyptian priest called Anibo. It's lost, but we have lots of fragments. Scholars often assume that this Anibo is a literary fiction of some kind. And maybe he is, but there are some unanswered questions about this whole Anibo Abamon thing, which no one has answered to my satisfaction. And these probably can't be answered on the current state of evidence. Something's going on with these personae, and we don't know what it is, in my view. Anyway, in this letter, Porphyry asks loads of questions about religious practices, especially Egyptian practices, wondering how the heck they're supposed to work based on Porphyry's philosophic assumptions, which are that, for instance, the noetic gods are wholly immaterial and impassable to anything from the cosmos. So how could material rituals possibly affect them at all? And this being the case, what is going on when ritualists uh, threaten and cajole the gods to make them do what they want? In the longest uh, selection, which survives from the letter to Anibo, this is preserved by Eusebius, um, and this is really a pretty solid direct quotation. So if you want to read what Porphyry's actual words were, this is what you want, the Eusebius selection. He's saying, what bothers me is that all the contradictions between these ritual practices and what I take to be sensible theology. You Egyptians have these priests who are forbidden to touch dead animals for reasons of ritual purity, and yet we are to imagine that gods are avidly inhaling the aroma of burning meat from sacrifices. You have all these guys threatening demons and the souls of the dead with chastisement and whatnot. Okay, that's fine, souls of the dead. But you have guys threatening the sun himself with chastisement. Come on, let's be serious. These are the sorts of objections Porphyry is raising in this Eusebius passage. And in Ceteris Paribus, if you read that passage, you pretty much can get a sense of where Porphyry is coming from. And this is borne out by all the little quotations or semi-quotations that we find in the De Mysterious that Yamaka says, you say this, and I answer you with this enormous long passage. In short, Porphyry here is obviously familiar with animal sacrifice. Everyone was familiar with that in the ancient world. And being a Neopythagorean veggie Platonist, right, he opposes it and thinks it makes no sense. But he has solid philosophical reasons for this. Why would material smoke be of interest to noetic gods, for example? He's also familiar with the rituals known as bindings, where ritual practitioners threaten or cajole entities they're trying to summon to make them do what they want. Uh, incidentally, in this passage, Porphyry cites the Egyptian Stoic Chairamon. Especially keen listeners might remember him from episode 44 on Stoic Esoteric Hermeneutics. He cites Chairamon on how Egyptian practitioners often use the story of Isis and Osiris and Horus in their conjurations. This is what scholars of magic sometimes call a historiola, where you retell a bit of an account or the whole story of some great event, so as to invoke the power of that event into the present context. In Christian, early Christian amulets, for example, you often find something like, and Jesus was born of a virgin, and he lived a life fulfilling all the prophecies, then he died upon the cross and was reborn. That'll be on a magical amulet. So just by having that story told in its outline, you, you give power to the thing. So he's, he says, Chiraman tells us that there are all these... Um, Magical practices involving the, the story of Isis, Osiris, and Horus. What's going on with that? He asks how the usage of meaningless names 
Mokis Magikai can be useful. I mean, it's not like the gods are Egyptian, so why would we expect them to respond better to Egyptian language or, or any other language? So that's the passage of Porphyry that survives for, there's about four or five pages of it in the modern printed edition. So that's a little taste of the letter to Anibo in its natural habitat. In the De Mysteris, by way of contrast, it's very hard to reconstruct Porphyry's exact words, as Iamblichus just isn't quoting him for the most part, as far as we can tell, but just paraphrasing his questions so that he can refute them. So exactly the form the letter took is an open question. Scholarship on the letter to Anibo has ranged from reading Porphyry as dishing out a savage anti-ritual attack to reading his letter as a respectful set of problems set out for a specialist in these matters about specific nuances of, of ritual and everything in between those two poles. Now, for listeners who aren't particularly interested in reconstructing the views of Porphyry on ritual practice, we've probably said enough. Those who are so interested, however, may want to check out the special episode on the troubling evidence and the many attempts at reconstructing Arterian friends' views. For those gentle listeners who listened to our special episode on the question of the two origins and the two ammonii, yes, gentle listener, it's another Porphyrian mystery. They do seem to crop up, don't they? Anyway, let me just say one more thing here about the letter to Anibo, and then we'll get on to the Yamblichus side of the equation. Everyone knows that Porphyry is asking Yamblichus questions about theurgy, right? Well, here's the thing. Yamlikos is answering Porphyry's questions in terms of theurgy, or what theurgists do. So Porphyry will say, what about this practice of using asema anomata, meaningless names? And Yamlikos will say, ah, Porphyry, what you do not understand is that the theurgists use these names because the gods have given them to humanity, and the gods actually understand the meaning of them. We don't need to understand the meaning of them. In other words, Porphyry's asked a question, which may have been about theurgy, or may have just been about magic words. And Iamblichus has answered it in terms of theurgy, in terms of what the theurgists do. But we do not actually find either term, theurgy or theurgist, in what survives of the letter to Anibo, or indeed anywhere in Porphyry, except... For Porphyry, as quoted by St. Augustine in On the City of God, in Latin, long after this whole debate is published. In other words, it's very easy, if we want to assume that Porphyry never used the word theurgy at all, which is a possibility based on the evidence, right? Theurgy has, by Augustine's time, become a thing, if for no other reason than through the De Mysterius. And Augustine could simply be paraphrasing Porphyry and all the discussions about from Porphyry about uh, ritual practices and so on and so forth. He says, this thing that you call theurgy, because that's what people call this stuff who are philosophically educated. Speculative. Anyway, the question can be raised as to whether Porphyry was talking about theurgy as such at all. He might have just been asking about a bunch of different Egyptian religious practices, including a bunch of practices which some scholars might want to call magical as well as religious, and the term theurgy never appears in his writings at all anywhere. More on that in the special episode about Porphyry. It's worth bringing up here because when we get to our scholars looking to describe what theurgy was, right, some are going to take what you might call the mainstream view, which assumes that Porphyry was indeed saying, so you claim to be doing theurgy, Egyptian priest Anibo. 
So how do these wokes magikai work then? But there's a more minimalist school, which argues that Porphyry is asking about rituals, yes, but Iamblichus is answering him, by essence, through inventing a new religious tradition called theurgy, and sort of, well, rebranding a bunch of traditional ritual practices with this new word that he probably got from the Chaldean oracles, but there's nothing particularly Chaldean oracle-ish about it except the name. Boom. Okay. But for those of you who came here for the Iamblichus, enough with the Tyrian, let's get with the Syrian. What do we find in Iamblichus's De Mysteries? First of all, it's a really massive book for an antique uh, monograph. Secondly, it is, I think, helpful to note that, as Safre Sagon suggests, there is a vaguely tripartite structure to the book. So there's some preliminary opening remarks, then there's section one on the gods, section two on divination, and section three on theurgy. So far, so good. Now, the divination and the theurgy are clearly the same kind of thing. But um, coming to a very clear definition of what Iamblichus defines as theurgic ritual is a bit difficult. So it's tempting to lump it all together under theurgy. And Iamblichus sometimes seems to do that. But at other times he seems to say, no, 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 no. What theurgists do is very, very specific. And it also excludes a lot of stuff. Is not what the theurgists do. So far, so good. We have a roughly tripartite structure to this book. And now let's read our opening lines. All translations in this episode are taken from Clark, Dylan, and Hirschbell, if they're uh, of the De Mysteries. Quote, Hermes, the god who presides over rational discourse, has long been considered, quite rightly, to be the common patron of all priests. He who presides over true knowledge about the gods is one and the same always and everywhere. It is to him that our ancestors in particular dedicated the fruits of their wisdom, attributing all their own writings to Hermes. And if we, for our part, receive from this god our due share of favor, such as we are capable of receiving, you, for your part, do well in laying before the priests questions about theology, such as they love to deal with, and which pertain to their expertise. And at the same time, assuming that the letter sent to my student Anibo may be addressed equally well to me, it is reasonable for me to grant you a true reply to your inquiries, end quote. Okay, so a bit of a florid peroration there. What's Yamblikos doing here? Well, he's establishing his identity. He is an Egyptian priest and superior to Anibo. Anibo his, is his student. So this is the big daddy priest writing back. But he's also putting the whole work under the aegis of that most multifaceted of gods, Hermes. And note that this is, in some respect, the Egyptian Hermes, because um, the reference to all the pseudonymous writings from Egypt here, attributed to Hermes, clearly references to Hermetica. And the Greek Hermes doesn't write Hermetica. It's the Egyptian Hermes who does that. Now, the prelims to the De Mysterius are actually quite important as they contain what is, as far as I'm aware, the very first construction of a wisdom lineage, which would later become very important in Western esotericism, to say the least, Namely, Iamblichus mentions in passing that Pythagoras and Plato both learned their doctrine about the gods from ancient steles set up by Hermes. The history of wisdom would never be the same, gentle listeners. Keen uh, listeners to our Hermetica series will find themselves on familiar territory because we know that Hermes loves to set up steles in the desert. And speaking more generally, this work 
de Mysterius is kind of a treasure trove of Platonist Orientalism, with the Chaldeans and Assyrians making occasional appearance, but the whole thing, of course, presented as an Egyptian expose by an Egyptian priest. If we trust Safre and Segons and other interpreters, the references to Chaldeans are probably to the oracles. This could be true, it might not be true. As for Hermetica, as we've mentioned earlier in the show, the De Mysterious is our first known polytheist Platonist citation of genuine philosophical Hermetica, which occur at large in Book 7. So Iamblichus, or the author, has really read a lot of Hermetica. And here Iamblichus gets into what he calls the Hermaic teachings, or way, and tells us of a whole creation story, or um, ontogenesis story, which doesn't match anything we find in other Hermetica exactly, but definitely seems to have a kind of family resemblance to some uh, Hermetic ideas about how the world came to be. And there does seem to be an awful lot of genuine pre-Greek Egyptian lore in this account, uh, Egyptian gods and so forth mysterious to say the least as we mentioned last episode this work the day mysterious also contains a very hermetica like uh, diss track about the greeks where yamblichus says the greeks suck it's all about the ancient assyrians and egyptians now let's speak briefly about section one of this book on the gods yamblichus starts his response to porphyry by quoting porphyry having said Assuming that the gods exist, what can we say about da-da-da-da-da? And Abamon comes back saying, No, it's not right even to say the words assuming the gods exist. The knowledge of their existence is innate in us and actually even transcends knowledge. Um, it's, it's impossible even to conceive of the gods not existing. It's just beyond self-evidently true that they exist. This sets a tone right from the beginning of deep piety and a deeply engaged relationship with the gods on every level of life, which if it weren't so actively polytheist, would fit very well in a kind of Islamicate, like a Sufi mindset, where everything is viewed as outpourings of God's mercy and the working out of God's love in, in the creation. Um, everywhere you look, you see God, right? Yamblichus is definitely in that kind of mindset in the De Mysteries. There then follows a fairly wonderful, detailed account of the gods, covering the same metaphysical territory that we talked about in episodes 135 and 136. But what should be pointed out here is how much the metaphysics discussed in those episodes, uh, especially 135, is now reappearing as theology. When Iamblichus tells us about the noetic triad in his Timaeus commentary, there's some theology there, sure. We we learn about the Demiurge, for example, who is a kind of personalized god and so forth. But that same territory as it explored in the early discourses of the De Mysteries, it's just gods, gods, and more gods. The overwhelming vibe is of piety and of the god's presence ordering all things for the best, answering prayers, responding to our rituals with their blessings, and so forth. I'd like to emphasize two doctrinal points that Iamblichus makes about the gods and reality throughout the De Mysterious, because these are fundamental to the way theurgy is supposed to work. Um, one is the doctrine of matter. Matter, for Iamblichus, 
comes from the highest God, the one, like everything else. And so, like everything else in the universe, it has God juice within it. That's a technical term that we use here at the Schwepp. You know what we mean. So matter, contrary to Porphyry and Plotinus and many other Platonists, is not necessarily an evil thing or some kind of lack of being. It's not a negative quality. It's rather a necessary and beautiful and delightful substrate, which makes possible the blossoming of being. Yamlikus's matter in this work is actually in a weird way reminiscent of the fallen matter of early modern alchemy, uh, which sort of has the seeds of universal regeneration and salvation within it, if you know what I mean. Just to be clear, I'm not making any historical claims here. I do not think Yamlikus had uh, any direct or even particularly any indirect influence on early modern alchemical ideas. I'm just noting a, an interesting thematic parallel. The approach to matter could not be more different from the approach that we find in Plotinus. Secondly, second big point, the gods are everywhere in this universe. And our job as humans, as theurgists, is just to sort of harmonize ourselves to them or to learn to see the divine presence amid the other stuff that's going on in the universe. Remember our principle of downward extent of hypostases that we formulated in episode 135 as a, as a useful kind of rule for reading Iamblichus the way he thinks? This applies here in a very theological vein. So Porphyry's asked a question at one point about the ways in which different classes of divinity differ one from the other and asks how it is that the celestial gods, here he probably means the stars and planets, can come to be present here in the lower cosmos? How would it be possible to summon a celestial god, which has a body after all, you can see it in the sky, to visible appearance on earth? They're up there and we're down here. This is the problem Porphyry's raising. Um, he also discusses the different sorts of bodies various gods have. Quote, The cause of the distinction now being investigated is the assignment of these entities to different bodies. For example, that of the gods to ethereal bodies, that of daimones to aerial ones, and that of souls to earthly bodies. Right? So multiple bodies in the uh, divine fauna. And then he asks, quote, What is it that distinguishes the daimones from the visible and the invisible gods respectively, seeing that they are invisible, and that the visible gods are linked to the invisible ones? End of quote. So there's a bunch of different queries of Porphyry here that I'm sort of bringing together because I think Iamblichus kind of responds to them all with one answer. It's one complex answer. But before we get into Iamblichus's reply, it's, we must make a quick little detour and talk about all these bodies. How do Platonist gods have bodies at all? I thought they were incorporeal. Well, gentle listener, Iamblichus and Porphyry both share a worldview in which the human soul is equipped with a soul vehicle. See episodes 131 and especially 132 for Porphyry's uh, very central doctrine of the soul vehicle. Now for Iamblichus, as we'll see in a moment, all the gods have something like a soul vehicle as well, a god body. We've discussed Porphyry's views on the Ochema in episode 132, like I said, but Iamblichus differs from him on a number of key points. Most importantly, for Iamblichus, the Ochema is immortal, is not acquired during the soul's descent through the cosmos from the various uh, stellar influences and so on. No, it's an immortal 
etheric pneumatic body crafted by the demiurge right by the noose by the noetic god who created the cosmos itself like part of creating the cosmos was creating pneumatic bodies for us so we all have a kind of subtle body a spherical made of the highest form of cosmic matter pure ether and immortal body and it's largely on this subtle body that the theurgic purifications are thought to operate so again as we've discussed a little bit in the podcast the platonic notion of soul that we find in plato is so strongly incorporeal strongly not tied to matter strongly um contrasted with the body and with matter yes i know there's no matter in plato but you know what i mean extended uh embodiment that it's always difficult to come up with a platonist account of souls being affected by stuff in the world right well for Iamblichus, this all takes place through this uh, very developed, very detailed theory of subtle bodies, which are kind of half soul, half physical body, if you see what I mean. And they're spherical, which is always nice. So it is on these subtle bodies that theurgic purifications operate. So while the Iamblichian soul is a Platonist soul, so it is in theory separable from the body, right, by definition, I can't see anything that ever indicates that the soul ever actually is separated from the subtle spherical pneumatic body. So seemingly, Yamblichian man is eternally embodied, which is a new thing that we haven't seen in Platonism yet. It's interesting, but it's not so relevant to the De Mysteries, perhaps, except, going back to the gods, that all the gods have bodies like this too, except of a higher grade than we do. And that also helps explain how theurges can work on the gods, right? If they were completely impassable uh, on a, some utter fundamental level, then you couldn't even communicate with them. But no, they have bodies. Our best passage about how the gods, the greatest kinds, and human souls interact with their bodies is actually found in Iamblichus's De Anima 28, not in the De Mysterious, but we'll cite it here as it helps understand the worldview in which Iamblichus situates the theurgic practices. Again, this is a Finnemore Dillon's translation. Quote, The association of all souls with bodies is not the same. The all soul, that's the world soul, as Plotinus also believes, holds in itself the body that is appended to it, but it is not itself appended to this body or enveloped by it. That would be the cosmos, folks. That's the body of the world soul. Individual souls, on the other hand, attach themselves to bodies, fall under the control of bodies, and come to dwell in bodies that are already overcome by the nature of the cosmos. Okay, so far so good. Now this is where it gets crazy, gentle listener. The souls of gods adapt their bodies, which imitate nous to their own noetic essence. The souls of the other divine classes direct their vehicles according to their allotment in the cosmos. Furthermore, pure and perfect souls come to dwell in bodies in a pure manner, without passions and without being deprived of intellection, but opposite souls in an opposite manner. End of quote. Now note that when I called the bodies of the noetic gods soul vehicles, I might be going beyond the evidence. He calls them bodies, and then in the other divine classes, he talks about vehicles. My feeling is he means that all of these bodies are vehicles. At any rate, getting back to our main uh, discussion, <laughs> Yamlikus's reply to Porphyry's questions about how to create a kind of 
taxonomy of gods, how are we supposed to judge which kinds of gods have which kinds of bodies, and how the celestial gods can be present down here on Earth in any way, shape, or form. Iamblichus' reply is, is in a tone of kind of metaphysical censure, like a kind of like, how dare you blaspheme type tone. Yes, the subnoetic gods have bodies of various subtle kinds, but they are not within their bodies. Their bodies are within them. And they are not constrained by physical space the way embodied humans are. Quote, and indeed, what is it that prevents the gods from proceeding in any direction and hinders their power from going further than the vault of heaven? End of quote. So, in other words, don't tell me the star gods are stuck up in space just because you can see their, their bodies up there. They can be absolutely anywhere. And a further critique of Porphyry's discussion here comes later, quote, And indeed, speaking generally, this doctrine constitutes the ruination of sacred ritual and theurgical communion of gods with men by banishing the presence of the higher classes of being outside the confines of the earth. For it amounts to nothing else but saying that the divine is set apart from the earthly realm and that it does not mingle with humanity. End of quote. So, the point I want to bring out here is that Iamblichus's vision of the gods in this work is one of total and complete imminence in a way which is actually summed up quite well by that little exchange between him and Porphyry there, but which can be found throughout the text of the Day Mysteries. The gods are immaterial, incorporeal, all-encompassing entities, which do not, however, occupy space or time, but they're not located in any way outside of the cosmos. They're in the cosmos. They interpenetrate the cosmos. They're here. The world is full of gods, which is a famous uh, dictum attributed to Thales, which Iamblichus quotes, um, probably getting it from either Plato or Aristotle or both. The world is full of gods. So the main thrust of Porphyry's difference of opinion with Abamon, generally speaking, right, is to do indeed with where the gods are located. Not physically, but where they are located. The noetic gods of Plotinus and I think Porphyry to some degree are the prototype of our cosmos. And they also contain our cosmos. The noose is often described by Plotinus as existing beyond the heavens. He doesn't mean this in the sense that it's spatially located, like you could get there in a rocket ship if you just went up and up and up, but that it has a relative absolute position outside the embodied cosmos. Now, Iamblichus would in a sense agree here, but his whole approach is to make the gods kind of activist, as it were. They irradiate and interpenetrate absolutely in everything in this world with their divine powers. Remember, the powers of Iamblichian hypostases extend all the way down, right? So when the right conditions are set up to manifest those powers in the universe, in the cosmos, there they are. Again, this is kind of what Plotinus thinks as well. But there is this very different emphasis more than a difference in doctrine, I'd say, which is very marked between the Plotinian and Iamblichian approaches. So if you can turn over a rock in Iamblichus' universe and find the divine staring back at you from under the rock, how does that work? That, in a nutshell, is Iamblichus' whole theory of ritual effectiveness, the inherent power of Wokes Magikai, the way divination works, and so on. This is how he puts it. The theurge, 
for it is he, knows the secret symbolic language of the gods as it's written in the cosmos. He can spy their sumbula hidden within ordinary stuff, rocks, plants, things, physical objects. So the theurge can do all manner of divination and such like. He can read not only the flights of birds and the lobes of livers, he can read the book of the world. And it's written in sumbula, symbolic hieroglyphs of the gods. Here we see one of our favorite Greek words at the Schweppe, I mean, of course, symbolon, taking on a new meaning, not exactly symbol in the modern English sense, but something like an hidden ontological trace of divine power, which can be interpreted by the theurge. So it can be read, although it's not a text in any traditional sense, and it's an ontological presence of the gods. The theurge also knows the occult properties of plants, stones, and all the rest, and he can use these, um, because these are, in fact, the symbola of the gods, right? To make statues and things like that, such that the gods will manifest in the statues. So it's not that we actually call the gods into statues, because we can't call gods, they're superior to us. But there's nowhere that they are not. They're already there. And then we just create this condition suitable in the statue for the manifestation of this or that particular deity. The theurge can use various operations to conjure the gods to visible appearance. Again, the theurge isn't really doing that. Rather, he's creating through ritual actions and words, the meaning of which he does not know, but which were given to us by the gods, a fitting material receptacle which will allow the manifestation of a particular divinity in particular circumstance. Out of the countless immaterial gods, always present everywhere at every moment, right? It's almost like a selection process. The theurge may become possessed by a god. Contrary to Porphyry's suggestion that this might be a bad thing, that you might get possessed by a bad daimon, for example, Iamblichus refers to Plato's Ion for a proof text that possession, enthusiasmos, is actually a holy thing, one of the greatest goods bestowed on us by the gods. So this is definitely in the kind of, um, you could you could say, uh, territory familiar either from Voudan or from like Pentecostal Christianity. <laughs> Take your pick. But having the gods come into you, having your spirit taken over by divine intelligences is seen as like the greatest of blessings. The theurge prays and the three different levels of prayer all function because the litanies of prayer were given to mankind by the gods themselves. This isn't some kind of freeform prayer where you go, oh gods, please, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. No, this is like there are formulae. The gods gave them to humanity. You use those and then you will come up with the three different types of prayer, each of which has its different effect. Uh, one type is the synagogon, the prayer which leads us together not to be confused with the synagogue prayer. That's something different, even though it's the same word. No, this is a prayer which gives gnorisis of the gods, uh, sort of like intimate familiarity with them. Gnorisis is actually quite cognate to the word gnosis in Greek. So like acquaintance in the sense of, yeah, we've had coffee, we know each other. Then there is the syndetikon prayer, which links us with the gods through sympathetic association and can call forth blessings from them before we even ask for their favors. So this is the sort of um, thing that holy men do, such that all these miracles are always happening. 
Um, it's because they've done their Sundetikon prayers and the gods are actually like falling over themselves to shower blessings on them. So you don't, don't even pray. Don't even ask for me to make this miracle happen. We're just going to make it happen because we, we're connected to you. Lastly, and most amazingly, there is a prayer called He Aritos Henosis. The ineffable union or ineffable act of becoming one in which the theurge fully surrenders to the gods in some way, which is difficult to describe, and becomes one with them. So the theurge can seemingly attain to the ultimate spiritual achievement of um, Platonists like Plotinus and Proclus, of becoming one, becoming unified with the gods. And they can do this by using a toolkit of prayer litanies that the gods gave humankind. Obviously, it's not that simple. You need purifications and all that kind of stuff, virtues and things like that. But this is the kind of things you can get if you practice theurgic prayer. Now, in doing all of these ritual practices, and a few more that we haven't mentioned, but we'll get to, the theurge is achieving his own salvation, but he's also kind of achieving the salvation of the cosmos as a whole. So things have gotten a lot more salvation-ish in the world of Platonism than they were among the earlier Platonists we've looked at. There is, in Iamblichus, a late antique sense that mankind is in need of saving in a big way. We saw this in Porphyry as well. Very little of it in Plotinus, to be honest. There's some in Plotinus. But really, the sense that we're lost and in need of salvation is very much a late antique thing that grows and grows as Christianity takes over. But it's very much present as well in Iamblichus. So he's achieving his own salvation by manipulating the divine symbola within the cosmos through ritual practices, and by doing so, calling down the noetic, noeric, and other higher powers, which then just in turn purify the pneumatic vehicle, the subtle body, and elevate the soul, albeit temporarily, it would seem, to the level of the noetic triad. So the gods come down and just basically blast you with their amazing godliness, and it makes you godlike. The theurge can even, through prayer, attain to the heights of metaphysical reality. But we should mention that, as we cited in an earlier episode on Iamblichus, the idea that certain souls are called into the world to be theurgic, but by doing so, to actually bring the whole of the cosmos into line with its divine sources. These are like the, the Platonist bodhisattvas, this is also what theurgists do. So we're not just saving ourselves, we're sort of uh, collaborating with the gods on the act of saving the cosmos as a whole. Now, when we talked about Plotinian metaphysics, we tried to emphasize the way in which this wasn't a map of abstract reality, but a map of a terrain upon which the philosopher is meant to live out his life, right? This is metaphysics as territory, where you actually dwell this is also true for Iamblichus, and we might want to argue that it's true in a way which at bottom reveals no fundamental differences in doctrine, or the differences which are there are quite slight compared with the commonalities. That would actually be my argument. However, for Iamblichus, the style is completely different. And for Iamblichus, this whole metaphysical picture, and remember how complicated his metaphysical picture is as well, it all plays out here, in the cosmos. Indeed, in the body. This is the fundamental difference, at least on the level of rhetoric, between Iamblichian Platonism, or theurgic Platonism perhaps, 
and the approach that we find in earlier authors, of which uh, Plotinus was perhaps the culmination, right? However, we shouldn't forget, for example, the famous opening of Plotinus's Ennead 4.8. Quote, Often awakening to myself from the body and becoming separate from all other externals, going within myself, I have seen an extraordinarily marvelous beauty. Convinced then that this was by far the better portion, I actually lived the best life and was assimilated to the divine. Establishing myself in that, I came to that noetic reality above all others and established myself there. After this establishment in the divine, having descended from intellect to discursive reasoning, I'm baffled by how I have now come down and how my soul has ever come to be within the body when it has shown itself to be of such a nature by itself, even when in the body. End of quote. Now, Plotinus is in fact saying here, I have been to the other world, the noetic world, and it's complicated. There's a highest point of it, right? It's not as simple as I might let on. And it's here in the body. So again, maybe the two approaches, Platinian and Yambakian, are not as different as many have made them out to be. Now, I'm not trying to bulldoze the genuine metaphysical differences between Iamblichus and Plotinus stroke porphyry. Iamblichus thinks Plotinus is wrong about some stuff, like the undescended self and the ability of the human self to transform into higher genera of being, to become the noose, for example. He thinks that's just wrong. I will, however, say that to get the general sense of their differences without going too deeply into the nitty-gritty of Platonist metaphysical theory, what you want to do is look at it this way. All divinities in Platonism from Plotinus onward are characterized by a paradoxical transcendence and imminence at the same time. They're all transcendent, they're all imminent. As Jean Triard wisely puts it, among the Neoplatonists, transcendence isn't exteriority or absence. Imminence and transcendence are not in an inverse ratio. They are in a direct ratio. Now, that is our all-too-brief, though rather long, introduction to the De Mysteries as a book. And uh, with a few interesting digressions, I hope interesting, and a few points of what I take to be the key things to keep in mind when reading this book, for getting the picture of what's going on and why Iamblichus, or the, the author, disagrees with Porphyry. Turning to theurgy proper, in discussing theurgy, we're interested in exactly what Iamblichus was talking about, right? For example, was he philosophizing a bunch of readily available magical rituals for use in a kind of new religious movement of his own devising? That's one theory out there. Or was he part of something that other people were calling theurgy? Was he just one guy among the theurgists? How Egyptian was this stuff, actually? And was any of it linked to the Chaldean oracles? Which, as the main scholarly consensus has been telling us for about 100 years, is meant to be where the whole theurgic theory and practice comes from. There are a lot more questions we can ask about this theurgy business, as Iamblichus depicts it. And so we have interviewed a number of specialists with very different takes on this material. And we're going to provide our listeners with a number of different answers to the question, what was Yamlikian theurgy? Because 
to give it one single answer perhaps doesn't do it justice. And because the De Mysteries is perhaps the single best source for details of ritual practices from antiquity, about half of which would generally be considered magic and the other half would be considered divination, and of course some would consider divination a subcategory of magic anyway, the discussion of theurgy is worth our attention for that alone. We get so much data fleshing out how magic and divination were done. And I'm not talking about the state divination of the Roman augurs. I'm talking about you are alone in your house and you want to find something out through clairvoyance. How do you go about doing it? All that kind of stuff we get in the De Mysteries. Shockingly little description of ancient ritual survives. Uh, It's crazy, for example, that we don't really know all the details of how an animal was sacrificed in a public temple something that happened every day in the Greco-Roman world. It's not that this stuff was secret, it's the opposite problem. This stuff was so well known to everyone that authors didn't feel the necessity of writing it down. You know, why would you explain something that everyone knows? But we get some very juicy details in the De Mysteries between Porphyry's questions and Iamblichus's answers, which go a long way toward filling in a few gaps in our knowledge of ancient magic. So even though this work is written very much with philosophers as the intended audience, it also has a lot to tell historians of magic. Join us next time as we discuss Yamblikian theurgy with Professor John Finnamore. And in the meantime, stay esoteric. Stay esoteric.